The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Good morning, you guys. I hope you all are uh, excited to hear from me this morning. Brother Jimmy is, uh, yeah, come on. So uh, Brother Jimmy is uh, taking a a bit of a Shabbat, so uh, Sabbath for for those of you. Uh, Jimmy takes a rest for ministry, a much needed and well-deserved. So every seven years, Jimmy takes a full sabbatical of seven weeks, and then every three years, he takes one for three weeks. So we're at the half sabbatical. So, But I do hope he's resting fully and not partially, uh, even though he's on a partial sabbatical. So anyway, if you guys need anything um, during really the month of July, feel free to reach out to Rick. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, just kidding. Uh, you can call me. You can text me. Uh, certainly Rick or Molly, Corey, Sean, any of us on staff. We're, we are certainly a team here, and we would love to hear from you, uh, minister to you, whatever it is that the, the Lord would have need. So excited to, and actually I'm surprised. I, July 4th weekend is typically one of the lowest attended church services uh, the entire year. I was confident there'd be less than 12 people here this morning, so I'm really excited to see you guys. Uh, It it does bring some energy. So we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke, okay? So if you wanted to go ahead and turn there, we are going to land in uh, chapter 7. So I'm not going to actually teach through obviously seven chapters of Luke, there's no way uh, I could spend all month doing that. However, I feel led to do some speed reading or some storying uh, through the first several chapters, and then we're going to land on a really special story that I want to share with you guys and trust that God's Word would would minister to our hearts with a couple of takeaways. Uh, And and so bear with me, uh, and we're going to do that throughout the course of the month of July. We're going to be in the book of Luke, and and, and we're going to speed through some sections, and then we're going to slow down in some others. So if you guys would would join me on that journey, uh, listen here as I kind of break down uh, and build up a case for what Jesus does in the seventh chapter. Uh, The gospel of Luke is is really interesting, and, and I could probably spend a whole sermon just on describing the differences between the Gospels, etc. But uh, certainly, uh, Luke uh, has a, a different take on the Gospel. And the one that we're going to land on, what story we're going to land on, is actually unique to the book of Luke compared to the other three Gospels. And so uh, I was excited to be reading through this. I felt God had me land here. And so uh, join with me. In the first uh, chapter of Luke, we've got uh, the birth of John the Baptist, right? It's an exciting story where um, um, John the Baptist's mother uh, finds out that she's pregnant, right? And, and she goes and, and shares that news of her pregnancy uh, with um, Mary, right? And it's this kind of a neat story there where uh, it says that even um, at the very uh, sounding uh, that that uh, Mary was was pregnant with Jesus, right, Uh, that John the Baptist, six months older, leapt in the womb, right? Like he heard about Jesus's birth and he was excited. And so it says he he leapt in the womb. And so uh, we have that in throughout chapter one and you know, Mary visiting uh, Elizabeth, and, and then Mary sings uh, a beautiful song, of course, uh, the birth of John the Baptist, uh, again, who is about six months uh, older 
um, than, than was Jesus. And so then we have the, the birth of Jesus in, in chapter 2, and uh, the, of course the amazing uh, events of, of, the, of the actual birth of Christ. And then we go into you know, Jesus being presented in the temple, and, where, and we have a, a man named Simeon who was there, and, and Simeon believed that God had, had um, told him, the Holy Spirit had told him, it says that Simeon was a man full of the Spirit of God, and, and, and God had told him that he would not see death before he saw the Messiah. And they brought the baby Jesus to the temple, and Simeon, as soon as he laid eyes on him, he knew that, that it was him and that God had confirmed indeed that uh, what God said to Simeon was true and of course what God said about Jesus and the, and the coming forth of the Messiah was true. Uh, neat story there. Then we go to chapter 3. John the Baptist is living his crazy life out in the wilderness, right? He's got his little satchel on and his unique diet, locusts and honey, you know, and people thought he was a little bit of an odd duck, but at the same time, he was highly respected and highly revered. And people knew that God was with him. People knew that he had a message of the Lord. But his primary message, and we're reminded in, in, in chapter 3, is that you know John the Baptist was the one that was to uh, make way or make straight the way of the Lord, right? John the Baptist was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah, right? That, that there would be one crying in the wilderness, preparing the Messiah. And indeed, it became pretty obvious to lots and lots of people uh, in the nation of Israel that John the Baptist was indeed likely that character. And of course, we find out later that Jesus does confirm because he's outright asked about it. Is this crazy guy that wears the satchel and eats locusts, and is he the guy that's proclaiming the good news about you? And are you that guy? And Jesus says, all of what you've said is true, right? And so that's a pretty neat thing. And then we go through the genealogy of Jesus, of course, validating that he is indeed of the bloodline of David, right? And so a more validation that Jesus is who he says he was. In chapter 4, Jesus is tested in the wilderness by Satan. We all know that story uh, where um, basically Satan you know, offers him up the kingdom uh, of the earth, right? And Jesus says you should not tempt the Lord your God, right? Do not put the Lord your God to the test, and um, and so Jesus uh, was was uh, withstood the the temptations of the enemy there, and then he goes to Nazareth, his hometown, right where he was uh, grew up, and when he went into the uh, the synagogue, right the the would have been their local church at the time of uh, of history then, and so he goes into the synagogue and he starts teaching and. And then they, they wanted to uh, cast him out, right? Jesus' ministry had begun. John the Baptist had baptized him. He was, you know, the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus uh, like a dove, right? And he is filled, and his public ministry begins. He's in his early 30s, roughly. And, uh, and he goes to Nazareth, and he's teaching in the synagogue. And the, the Pharisees and the locals there were, uh, were not happy with it, right? And they, he was a, a local uh, to them, but they they didn't like his message, right? And so they tried to throw him. It says that they they backed him up to the cliffs in Nazareth, and they tried to throw him off. It's actually kind of interesting. Molly and I, when we went to Israel 
going to Nazareth is pretty cool. It's like in the Valley of Megiddo. It's on the, uh, one of the sides. I don't know if it's the north or the south side. But uh, either way, it's pretty neat. Like uh, if you just envision all these just massive grain fields, uh, like we have corn and soybean fields here, you know, they've got wheat fields and, and, and lots of uh, fruit groves, actually. Israel is actually the, the, this is completely off subject, but it's pretty cool. It's one of the most agriculturally successful countries in the entire world. Like per acre, Israel produces more fruits and vegetables than any other country in the world, which is pretty amazing and ironic because it's in the middle of the desert, right? Literally, you go right across the border into Jordan or Lebanon or Syria or Egypt, you're not growing anything but sand, right? So anyway, just a little shout out to the Lord and his blessings and his favor upon the nation of Israel. It's pretty awesome. You go there and there's fruit trees everywhere and there's corn and beans and wheat and all kinds. There's banana groves popping everywhere. And it's like, wow, this is amazing. The Lord has blessed a dry and arid land and made it fruitful, just like he said he would. Uh, But anyway, uh, in Nazareth, man, it's pretty cool. It's way up on this hill. I mean, it's up there. It's windy, too. Like, we drove uh, the bus up there with some other people that we were with, and and it's pretty obvious where the cliffs are. And so it's kind of interesting when it says that the people, you know, the drunkards were were making fun of him, and the the Pharisees, man, they wanted to push him off of the cliffs. It's like, I wouldn't want to be pushed off those cliffs, man. It's it's, and then, of course, it, uh, he disappears through the crowd, right, which is interesting. And I'm sure they were like, man, I mean, this guy, <laughs> he, he was here and now he's not, right? Like he, but he's, he's, they're saying that he's God and he's saying that he's God. He's got to be like, you know, um, nobody else can, can pass through crowds and whatnot. So Jesus starts to, um, uh, to show himself, right? Full of the Holy Spirit, his ministry starts to begin. Uh, continuing on at the end of verse I'm sorry, chapter four, you know, he drives out uh, an impure spirit uh, in Capernaum, which is kind of the main town there on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. You know, Jesus spent a lot of his time ministering in and around the region of Galilee. Uh, he heals lots of people. He goes to Simon's house, um, heals his mother-in-law, his friend Simon's mother-in-law, and then uh, he actually goes in the backyard and uh, performs a few other miracles there. And they wanted him to stick around, but uh, Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that's why I was sent. And so uh, every, everywhere Jesus went, he, he was attractive to those, of course, who he was ministering to, and they wanted to kind of latch on to him, but he's like, no, 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 uh, you're clean, you're made well, go and, 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 and have your way with your life, uh, and I'm going to go do what the Father's will is for me, which is to move on and, and to go where I'm sent. And then in verse 5, uh, he's not alone in his ministry anymore. He, he calls his disciples, right? I'm sorry, I keep saying verse. Chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, uh, he calls uh, his, his disciples, his first group of disciples, right? He tells them to throw the net out. They catch a whole bunch of fish. They're like, oh my gosh, this guy must be uh, something special. And of course, he, he was. He calls his disciples. He heals a man with leprosy. Uh, he heals a paralytic. Um, and then... He goes in and meets with uh, Matthew, the tax collector, right? He actually meets him at the tax booth and says, come and follow me. Matthew says, better yet, why don't you come eat with me? He invites him over to the house, and uh, him and Matthew have a nice meal together. And uh, what, a, what, a, what a big deal that must have been for, for Matthew to, to host Jesus and to feel called by him in a very personal sense. So that's really cool. There's all kinds of lessons 
tied in here that I don't have time to get into. Um, I wish I did. However, um, the Pharisees are starting to take notice, right? In chapter uh, 5, the, the opposition of the Pharisees and the, and the religious people of the day start to become increasing uh, as Jesus' ministry moves forward. Uh, their concern that he was going to interrupt what they had going on starts to increase as well. And um, and so the, these Pharisees are like, well, why does he eat with these tax collectors and sinners? Like, these are bad people, you know? Why, does, why, is, he, why is he mingling with those people? Shouldn't he be, you know, mingling with us, the, the really good church people, this, you know, the, the religious people? And, um, you know, I think it's sometimes we struggle with that in the church today, too, is like, you know, we... And I think sometimes our hearts are in the right place at times, but I think it's a bit off where... It's good for us to gather, right, like we are now. Man, I'm looking out in a group of people, and none of us are perfect, myself included, but we like to gather with other like-minded Christians and, and to be uh, a family, a spiritual family, and encourage one another and, and to be unified and have fellowship and praise God together and worship and all amazing. But we, we lack this, this eating with tax collectors and sinners mentality, right, where we just don't do a great job of reaching lost people. That's, I think, the greatest flaw in the church today, especially the church in America, is we just suck at reaching lost people. Like, we're really good about um, having fellowship and kind of getting excited about, like, our happy Jesus, Christian, born-again, saved lives, and we just are not really hypersensitive to the people out there that don't know Jesus. Uh, and so that's a bit of a side nugget, but... Uh, I think that Jesus was modeling that for, for us uh, as we read the word. Jesus was modeling what it's like. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I broke down uh, in the first seven chapters. That's as far as I made it this week. Uh, but what's cool is I wrote down everything that, that uh, Jesus either did or said or, um, you know, was doing and the place that he was. And through the first seven chapters, there's over, I had over a list of over 25, like Jesus healed a paralytic, Jesus healed Matthew's, or I'm sorry, uh, Simon's mother-in-law, Jesus met with Matthew, you get the point, Jesus called his disciples. Out of a list of 25, only twice was Jesus in the synagogue. It's like really interesting, like he's in the backyard at Simon's house, he's at the, in the boat by the lake, he's in the town streets, uh, he was up on the mountain, he went to a solitary place to pray by himself, he was all over the place, man, he was everywhere, and it's all recorded, like ministry was happening everywhere he went. It wasn't just in the synagogue, right? And just same for us, man, like ministry doesn't just happen at OPCC, like in fact, this should be probably 10% of where the ministry of our lives happens, the 90% happens out there. And we just come back and we fill up and then we go back out. Uh, we're not great at that, but we're learning. And so in chapter 6, uh, Jesus teaches a lesson, again, not in the church. He teaches a lesson in a grain field, right? And he teaches about lordship and how he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And, he, and, he, and he's quoting scripture and, and reminding them what David said. And uh, he calls the 12 to him in chapter 6. And he gives a long list of, of blessings and woes, which is actually really cool. And I encourage you guys to read this week. Just read through Luke. And that way you can take what we're talking about here and we can build on it throughout 
the month of July. And then Jesus goes on uh, to talk about loving uh, our enemies. And he's really giving in, at the end, in the middle and the end of chapter 6, Jesus is really beefing up his discipleship. Like he has called his disciples, and he's now really pouring into these guys. Now, he's still doing like public ministry. He's still healing random people and, 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 and meeting um, people that, that, are, um, that are, what's the right word? That are unexpected, I would say, and that's kind of actually what we'll get to here in just a second. Jesus encounters the most unexpected people, uh, which is really cool because that's kind of a story about us, but he is also really, uh, the bulk of his teaching is actually for his disciples. Uh, he's, he's teaching these 12 men how to live well and to do what he's asked them to do. Now, when we get into the uh, chapter 7, this is the meat of the discussion this morning. Uh, just join with me in verse 1, if you would. Luke chapter 7. It says, When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Again, he's back in this town of Capernaum, right? Where it's a, 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 a common place for Jesus to, to, to make himself seen and his ministry would, would carry out there. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. So this guy's he, he's not doing good. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This is kind of cool on July 4th. This man deserves to have you do this, they told Jesus, because he loves our nation and he's built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. I was like, that's cool, man. He's a patriotic guy, man. This guy's helped build the church. He's invested in the kingdom, and he loves his country, man. What a guy. So he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. This is fascinating. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And he turned, the crowd, turned to the crowd uh, following him. He said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is a really cool story where Jesus heals this centurion's servant, his, one of his workers, who was a, a patriotic and a faithful guy. They send to Jesus and just say, man, Lord, if you just say the word, this man can be healed. Like, you don't even have to touch him. Uh, we don't have to bring him to you. He's almost, he's practically dead. Jesus is like, that kind of faith is amazing. He was amazed with these guys and he healed the man. Now we get to this verse 11, and that's where, the, that's where we're going to land uh, for this morning. And I, I wanted to read the previous part because it said when Jesus was in Capernaum when he had healed the centurion's servant, right? We just read that. Now in verse 11, it says soon afterward, and in actually in other versions, it says that next morning or the next day, Jesus went to a town called Nain. That kind of struck me as I was reading. I'm like, Nain, I've never even heard of that town. And I've read the, those, the scriptures quite a bit. And I thought, man, the town Nain. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. 
the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, or he had compassion on her, which might actually be the most uh, Luke's greatest understatement in all of his story. Uh, we'll find out that's, that's very understated. But his heart went out to her, and he said, Do not cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and then Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe. They praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So we've got the miracle at Nain. Nain is a little town. It, I did some research. It's 30 miles southwest of Capernaum. Okay, so you've got the Sea of Galilee, and then you've got the town of Nazareth uh, over here. Uh, that's about 20 miles from Capernaum. Capernaum's on the west side. And you've got the city of Nain or the town or village of Nain. It's 30 miles. So I was like, huh, what's 30 miles from here southwest? So I'm like dropping pins this morning on my phone. I'm like, Paola, 22 miles. I'm like, huh, Osawatomie, 30 miles. I'm like, wow, okay. So from this church to go to downtown Osawatomie is on the nose 30 miles. Jesus did this either overnight or in the morning. And so I, my brain was stirred even more. I'm like, huh, how long would it take me to walk to Osawatomie? So I hit the little walk button, you know. It says 11 hours and 42 minutes. And that's on a paved road. So I thought, wow, I mean, that's, you know, it's really something. And so I, I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. Jesus went way out of his way the next morning, he was in Capernaum. He goes to Nain, uh, way out of his way. And I started thinking, well, I wonder if there's any details on this town of Nain. I never even heard of it. You know, Capernaum's pretty common. Cana's pretty common. Um, but Jerusalem, pretty common. Thirty, you know. Uh, so it, it actually is recorded by uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian at the time that was hired by the Romans to record the the dealings of the Jewish people. Uh, he actually noted that the town of Nain had roughly thirty four homes and one hundred and eighty nine people in it. So that's kind of cool. And then today, uh, it's a town of roughly 1,500 people. So it's still a, a community there in the town of Nain. But it uh, is indeed a small farming village. It's just at the base of uh, this uh, Mount Moray is what they call it. Uh, and access was limited, according to Josephus, so one way in and one way out. It just was a really small, small, tiny community. And the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, who was gaining all this popularity and really could have gone anywhere he wanted and draw the largest crowd that he wanted in the nation of Israel, finds himself the next day in Nain. And uh, he was there pursuing uh, a very specific group of people. And I wanted to break down briefly the, the different... Uh, um, people groups here. So you, I just kind of explained, you've got the city and the people of the city, right? Then you've got the widow. 
And we don't even know her name. The Bible doesn't just, just give, the, give her name, but we know that she was widowed, right? So her husband has died, and she had a son who was dead, right? Jesus shows up at the gates of the town, and they're carrying the young guy on a stretcher and probably had some sort of cloth over him or, or whatever. I don't know that they had caskets uh, back then. I kind of imagine like a you know, a couple guys on a stretcher, and, you know, there's a, a funeral proceeding, right? And they're coming out of the town, and, and probably we're going to bury him up in the hill somewhere. And Jesus is approaching, and uh, there were family and friends, and I kind of envision the, the mom, you know, walking behind them as, as like we do funeral processions, right? And the family is, is follows uh, shortly after, followed by friends. And I anticipate that uh, that's just tradition from long ago. And I expect that that's what they did in this time. And, but it's really a sad scene that Jesus walks up on. And this woman, she's already lost her husband. Now she's lost, it says it's her only son. And, you know, you know uh, we know that uh, certainly... Uh, financially, she would have been in a place of discouragement because her husband's gone. The, you know, the primary uh, means of, of financial support for her, likely, during that time was her, uh, her husband and his efforts and his wages. Uh, I would doubt that uh, he had any sort of 401k or any little life insurance policy uh, that she was reaping any benefits of. And the responsibility to care for her would have fallen on her eldest son, which was her only son, who is now dead on a stretcher, right? And so she's certainly thinking about, man, financially, what does this look like? You know, at that time, women in the marketplace wasn't a common thing. Women were in the home, and she was probably just thinking, like, this is stressful, you know? And not to mention uh, that she had lost her, her son. And it, I also like that this just shows that, that kind of the personalized ministry of Jesus. I mean, he wasn't really into crowds. Uh, he didn't attract a, a ton of people by his own desire. In fact, he was really pointed in his ministry, specifically with this widow. Uh, he traveled literally 30 miles on foot overnight to meet with her and, and encourage her. Uh, certainly, she raised, or I'm sorry, he raised her son from the dead. So we have the city, the people of the city. We have the widow. Um, we have Jesus himself, which we've already talked about, right? It says he had compassion on the woman. I, I joke and say that's grossly understated uh, by Brother Luke, but uh, that made us be a poor translation in English. But Jesus had abundant compassion on her. I mean, he was uh, laser focused on her. His, in fact, his life in that moment was actually centered on her. And I really like that. And she, what's cool is she had no idea. She had no idea Jesus was coming. She had no idea who Jesus was. She had no idea that the ability of her son to come back to life was even a possibility. And I have to think, you know, in our lives, there are things that appear dead. You know, we, we might, it might be a, a family member or a friend, uh, but maybe more realistically, you know, we, it, our business might be struggling and it feels dead. Uh, we might be in a relationship that's struggling, a marriage that feels dead. You know, we, we might be uh, at the end of our ropes uh, in something that we feel called to or asked to do, and we just don't feel like we have the energy or the care to do it. We feel dead inside, and we used to be alive, and now we're dead, and we're, we're, we're needing the intervention uh, of God, just like this lady is. 
And the son, right, he's dead. He is dead. He is literally dead. He is lifeless. But what I love about the son, and it doesn't say anything about him other than he was dead, rose to life by Jesus and given back to his mother. And what's awesome is he was given a second chance at life. I have no idea what this guy's life was like before Jesus raised him from the dead, but I promise you he was a changed man. By every measure, he was a changed man. And I I could uh, look at this story, and it's a very small story in the grand scheme of the gospel of Luke and the story of Christ that was recorded by him. But I was struck by it and the people in the story, and I could identify with every single character in the story. I can identify with the people and have, have heart for the people of that tiny little city, you know? I mean, the odds of them getting a big-time guy like Jesus coming to visit them, extremely low. I mean, you have uh, the likes of Capernaum and, and, and Jerusalem and uh, Elat and all these, uh, Damascus and all these uh, much greater metropolises that Jesus could have uh, spent his time at, right? If he was going to plant a church somewhere, boy, it sure wouldn't have been in Nain. Not a lot of people and not a lot of money there. But man, he was pumped to go and he was pointed and he changed their life. And so I, 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 and who knows, we don't know anything else about the city other than there's still the city, uh, which is actually amazing in and of itself. A little tiny town of 180 people 2,000 years ago still has 1,500 people in it. Um, and who knows what the story of God is there. I wonder if those people know this story. You know, I wonder if there's anybody living in Nain that knows what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Um, but in, in the widow, I mean, I have dead parts of my life where I you know, there's areas in my life that just feel so dead. And I'm like, Lord, I, I, at times I feel hopeless, like there's no resurrecting it. And, but, but I read this story and I'm like, there is hope. Jesus is, he could be on the way. He could cover 30 miles on foot overnight, no problem. Heck, he passed through the crowd in Nazareth like that. He didn't even touch anybody. He just vanished through. It says that he, went, he vanished through the walls of the, of the synagogue when the Pharisees were yelling at him after he was uh, preaching. He just, whoop, outside. You know, I mean, sometimes I forget, man. Like, this is Jesus, man. He is the God-man. And it's, he didn't just do it 2,000 years ago like Luke was witnessing. Man, he's doing it now. And his miracles haven't stopped. They just maybe look a little bit different, um, you know, I mean, we don't often come to a funeral and see somebody pop up out of the casket, but the miracles are still the same. He's the same God, you know? And so I, I, I needed to be reminded of that. And, uh, and of course, uh, I identify with Jesus in the sense that we want to be like him, right? We, we're not him. I mean, I'm not Jesus. I'm Shay. But I want to be like the Lord, and I want to do what he does. And that's, as I, that was really my heart as I was reading the Gospel of Luke, going, what did Jesus do? How did he live his life? You know, uh, And trying to model my life after that. And I see Jesus, like I said, I see him everywhere. We see him at barbecues. We see him at weddings. We see him at church. We see him in the town streets. We, we see him fellowshipping. We see him sleeping. We see him fishing. He's just living, man. He's a cool dude. But he was the God man. You know, passing through walls like it was nothing. And I just, uh, I'm joking a little bit, but uh, seriously, 
He had a heart, man. He had a heart for everybody, and he was laser focused. Um, and 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 some of the lessons that that I was that, that I want you guys to take away is one: God has compassion for every soul. You know, this lady is a prime example of that. Uh, God has compassion on every single person, and so wherever you are this morning, wherever I'm at this morning, He sees us. He knows you're there, and He wants to meet you there. And if you haven't met him there yet, don't worry. He's on his way, and he can cover ground quickly. Two, God will move heaven and earth to meet us in our need. That's the second takeaway. He, he, he had left uh, what was really a booming ministry at that time in Capernaum. I mean, man, he could have just moved and shaked and, and really made a lot of things happen there, but he didn't. He, he left that. He's like, I have my father's business to tend to, right? So he left something booming to go to a place very small, but it was meaningful to him. Uh, It was needed and necessary for him. In that moment, God was present on the earth in the form of a man and met this woman in a tiny little town at the base of a mountain. He will move heaven and earth to meet us in our need. The third thing I want us to takeaway here, and it is the final point, is that Jesus was not concerned about culture or mosaic law. He, he, his focus was richly on the people themselves. And we didn't talk a lot about that previously, but you know, when Jesus actually put his hands on a dead man and, and, and said to, to come forth, and I can imagine, it doesn't say this, but I know for a fact that when he brought that guy back to life, dude, they hugged it out. There's no doubt. You don't bring a guy back from the dead and not hug it out. Like, and so, it, you know, I, I, again, joking a little bit, but the reality is, man, that was an absolute major, epic, absolute no-no. You don't touch dead people. You don't even get close to dead people. The Pharisees were freaked out about uncleanliness, right? You were, you, he, would have, he would have been way, way, way unclean by touching a dead person. He would have had to have gone through uh, several rituals uh, to get clean. He would have had to have been ostracized from the entire community for a period of time. I think it's like seven days or something where he had to live in complete isolation, right? And he didn't care about any of that. He was completely unconcerned. He just literally didn't care. And this is the Mosaic law. Like these weren't like the laws of Nain, you know, or like rules of the city when he was coming in. This was the Mosaic law. But he's like, who cares? I came to fulfill the law. He's like, I am the law. Like, and he, he just, he deeply cared about this woman. He cared about her son and he cared about the town. And he threw away any preconceived religious notions or anything and just did the will of the father unashamed. And that's the heart of Jesus. And that's the heart that I'm hoping to stir in you guys and in myself this morning. Yeah, the last thing is, I, I, I have a little personal note here. I also uh, thought that God was teaching me a bit of a lesson on self-dependency in this story. I, I had to imagine as I was trying to put myself in the place of each of the characters in the story, right? Jesus, the widow, her son, and the people of the city, and even the disciples, I didn't get that far. But I was thinking about the widow, and she was probably like, God, I had a, you, I had a plan for my life, you know, whether it was with my husband or with my son and, and with my family, and uh, maybe it was uh, whatever it was. 
you know, I had a plan and a vision for my life, and here it is all crumbling. It's just right here. Like I'm literally walking behind my dead son. I just did this with my husband not long before. And I know she felt crushed. But what I found interesting, and she was probably sitting here thinking, like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to make the money? How am I going to meet somebody else? How am I going to get the support? How are the people in the town going to look at me? How am I going to do this? She, she was probably defaulting, like we all do, and I'm the worst at it, defaulting to self-dependence. How can I fix this problem? How can I do this thing in my life? How can I make my circumstances better? How can I change this? Or how can I do that? And I am so bad at doing this. Horrible. I mean, some of it is like a type A personality or a go-getter type personality, whatever. I like to make things happen and get stuff done. I mean, I'm the first person to, to enjoy, you know, feeling a little sense of, of joy and pride and like getting something done. Rick and I, uh, Rick was helping me put some rails up uh, at the cabin and I was so excited, man, because I needed his help. I wouldn't have never got it done without you. But uh, it was fun. We got it done. We're high-fiving. We're like, we did it, you know, and it's like, dude, they're guardrails. Like, let's... We don't get too excited, but it was fun. But, you know, we get fired up, man. We do things. We make things happen for ourselves. But I, I literally put here, this is just a personal note. I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I will land it here. Uh, and I'll actually invite Sean up uh, to go ahead and, and, and start to play at your leisure, man. Don't, don't hurt yourself. Um, but I, wanted to sh- I feel the Lord telling me to share this personal note with you, and maybe you can relate. I just wrote a note to myself. If I believe that God has put specific passions and desires on my heart and a vision for my life before me, then I must believe that he will provide the resources to make it happen. And now keep in mind, I'm not just talking about financial resources. I'm talking about resources like uh, energy. You know, there's a lot of times where I literally think, man, God's asked me to do so much, man. Pass through the church and lead my family and, and build some farms and do this and do that and like, you know, run a business. And man, I'm just like, all right, dude, I'm filled with vision. And then I look at my energy tank and I'm like, there's no way. That's not happening. Like I can barely get my oldest son to a baseball game, let alone like do all of this really well. But listen, if he does it, like if he provides... If it's, if it's his vision, then he will provide. And if he provides, it's his will. If he doesn't provide, it wasn't his will. It was just mine, right? So I put, Shay, don't become self-dependent to fund. And again, not just financially, but try to figure out how to either fund it financially or fund it with energy or whatever. Don't figure out how to fund it. It's God's project. And if it's his project and his dream, he has all the resources that he needs to complete it. And I wondered about this widow. She probably was wondering, man, how am I gonna, how am I gonna put my life together? Jesus is like, you're not. I will. I'll give you your son back. And he'll be a changed man. And he and, and, and you'll be fully provided for. And you and him and all the people in this town will never be the same because of it. And an encounter with Jesus like that will change your life and the lives of others. And I'm hopeful this morning that as you guys reflect on the encounters that you've had with Jesus, um, that other people would be just as affected. And if you struggle with self-dependency like I do, maybe this message or my personal note would speak to your heart and you can take the pressure off of yourself and say, man, I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to fund it. 
I don't have to go get more energy or get more money or get more friends or get another spouse or another boyfriend or girlfriend or another car. I don't need to figure out how to do all this. God, I trust the vision of my life into your hands and you'll provide all the resources to make your dream happen. And that's a really peaceful place to be and I hope that you'll meet me there. We're going to take communion. The cups are in the backs uh, of the seats in front of you. And uh, at this time, uh, Sean's going to continue to play. I'm going to lead us in, in, into a word of prayer. And, and I invite you to partake in communion uh, as the Lord would lead you and to really take some time here uh, during this song. And, and Sean will dismiss us when he's ready. But take some time to reflect. Am I self-dependent? God, what are you saying to me? Who am I in this story? How does the word minister to me this morning? I do hope you guys have an amazing 4th of July weekend uh, and a ton of fun with friends and family. But take a moment uh, to, to spend with the Lord before he sends us out and, and pray with me if you would. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for the word of God. We're thankful for the people in this church. We're thankful for the people in this community and, and far reaching than that. We thank you for this country, Lord. Like Sean said earlier, where it is, we are safe here, Lord. We, we can pray and worship and speak and proclaim your name openly. What a gift that is, Lord. May we not take that for granted. We thank you for your body that was broken for us, Lord. You gave your life for us. And your blood that was spilled, Lord, it is the only means of washing away our sin. Lord, the only way. You are the narrow gate that leads to eternal life, and we want to give you that this morning. Lord, we thank you. We trust you, Lord. Help us to avoid self-dependency. Help us to rely fully on you, and may the story of the widow at Nain encourage our hearts. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.